Hi, I'm Liz Wiseman, and you are listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast, click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkus.com slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? I am Liz Wiseman, and I um, coach and teach leaders around the world. And, you know, if I had to give a sense of what my mission is, I am probably not so secretly trying to rid the world of bad bosses (laughs) and to try to create organizations where people can contribute fully and be whole and maybe just show up to work and leave work feeling human. So. I think That's me and what I do. I think you have probably set for yourself a, a goal more ambitious than reversing the effects of climate change, right? Or 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 world peace or whatever you want. I'm going to rid the world of bad bosses. Well, good luck to you in that. Uh, right. Well, you know, you got to set the ambition big enough that you're, you're not too successful too early because then I'd have to come up with a whole second purpose for my work. And I don't know if I'm up for that. So, oh, no. Yeah, I, mean, I guess. All right. That's that's true. That's true. The, I'm going to be at this for a while because there are a lot of bad bosses out there. Yeah, you will not you will not work yourself out of a job anytime soon. However, if we can help you do that, we definitely uh, want to. There are enough bad bosses, which I guess uh, that leads to a probably a pretty good first part of the uh, the discussion. So we're we're here on the occasion of the re-release of Multipliers. Lots of books are really good. Very few books are good enough to warrant re- like revising them and updating them. Uh, multipliers is is one of those. I, the original book came out. Gosh, I don't even know how long ago. It is my favorite light bulb uh, covered book. Um, <laughs> no, it is. Uh, I can say that because the missive creativity has a monkey instead of a light bulb for some reason. So I I don't have a light bulb book. But no, it really is. Um, and it's it's chock full of all sorts of awesome examples. But the new one is chock full of new and and more awesome or equally awesome, but definitely more new examples. So we're here on that occasion, but I, I, a lot of folks, are, I think, are familiar with your work, etc. The big thing I want to dive into then is, is, let's start with that. What makes a bad boss? First, what makes a bad boss? Then we should probably talk about how do you know if you're accidentally one, but what makes somebody a bad boss? Well, you know, we often think of bad bosses as kind of like mean hombres and dictators and narcissists. I, I look at a bad boss differently. I, I think the worst bosses are the ones that pretend to be good bosses, but actually overlook and underutilize people. Like bosses where you get committed, intelligent, smart, energetic people badging in the office in the morning, 
but then coming home feeling underutilized. Um, you know, when we asked people what it was like to work for diminisher leaders, people said it was it was frustrating and and it was exhausting. You know, and and I think I've you know, so so Dave, you know this. I study leadership and I get to study and teach leadership all around the world. But you know, when you when you study leadership, you know what you end up learning a lot about? You learn a lot about followership. Hmm. And you learn about the experience, you know, you learn about leadership through the eyes of the customer of people's leadership, which is their employees. And here's what I've learned is that people come to work every day desperately wanting to contribute 100%, like everything they've got. I Like I, I have yet to find people that really come into work feeling lazy. Most people come in desperately wanting to contribute to 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 um to have big ideas to make something happen to make an impact and when they run into bosses that either don't want them to be big because the boss like wants that room for for themselves or they're just so busy focused on other things that they're overlooking the people around them like they send people home feeling deflated and eventually people quit and stay, you know, showing up to work, giving a fraction of their capability. In some ways, I think these are the worst bosses, not the tyrannical, narcissistic types, because, you know, we actually can see them and avoid them for the most part. But but it's the quietly bad bosses that I worry the most about. Yeah, I mean, I think the two probably – so I'm really lucky, actually, in that for the last uh, – for the better part of the last decade, I haven't really had a, a boss per se, right? I'm, I'm self-employed for half of my career. The other half of my career, I'm a professor, which is like we have chairs and deans and that sort of stuff, but they're not like – bosses, right? But on the other hand, if I look back through the entirety of my career, counting chairs and deans, but also counting in the for-profit world, probably the two worst bosses I've ever had were two people who really thought they were crushing it, who really thought they were doing like really, really great and sort of didn't have that that self-awareness to know that, no, they're actually, they're actually crushing their people, their hopes and dreams, et cetera. And I think, you know, the the research on engagement that, that Gallup and others uh, have done for, I don't know, four decades now, I think really does actually show that most people, at, at, I'm going to say at least half of all people, I'm not going to say everybody like you did, but at least half of all people want to make that fully engaged contribution, but don't. In reality, we get 20% in, instead of that. And I think that gap really is that. It's the, you call them the book Accidental Diminishers, but it's the it's the bosses that have a reality distortion field and don't actually... I don't know, don't have the self-awareness or got the wrong manual and think they're following it perfectly and it's really it's really sort of being terrible. I don't know I don't know what happens. Do you, do you think it's that they got bad advice or do you think it's that they think they're executing well but they're actually executing poorly? No, I you know, I don't uh, I think it's because they're human and and you know, human nature causes us to judge other people by their actions but ourselves by our intentions. And this reality distortion field isn't because we're crazy. It it's because we we get clouded by all of our good intentions. Um it was shocking to me when I did the first round of research what 8 9 years ago. 
I started right in here in Silicon Valley, which is my home turf. And Silicon Valley is as incestuous as, you know, everyone thinks it is. And so, you know, people are moving back and forth between companies. And when I'm doing my research and people are describing to me these multiplier leaders who bring out, you know, genius and capability in them and these diminishers who seem to suck the life out of people, they're telling me about their diminishers. And a lot of these people, I, I recognize the names. I know these people. Some of them are former colleagues and friends. And then later, you know, I'm at a restaurant, at the shopping mall, whatever, and I run into some of these people. They ask me, hey, Liz, what you working on? And I tell them, they're like, oh, that's fantastic. I love it. I love this idea of multiplier because, and you can complete the sentence, hmm. because I am such a multiplier. Like, I yeah. love this. Like, that's the way I lead. And I get this little speech from them about how important these ideas are. And that's their leadership ethos. And I'm thinking, wow, that's not what your employees say. Hmm. See, your employees have a very different view of this. And that's why I, I meant when I said, when you study leadership, you really see what followership and what kind of leadership people need and want and how they truly see their leaders. And I've, I've seen this not in one or two people. I've seen it over and over how few people understand the restrictive effect that they have on, on others. And yeah, there are not a lot of people who are tyrannical, narcissistic diminishers who don't understand it. <laughs> like, you know, most of those people understand that they're that kind of bad boss. But it's the accidental diminisher that most people don't see because we're doing things that seem so good, like um, people who want an innovative environment, um, you know, who really value creativity. People like me, you know, we often are tossing out ideas thinking, okay, our ideas are going to stimulate other ideas. But what's it like when you actually work for an idea guy, like the fountain of ideas, who's just always got new ideas they're tossing out? Well, it's kind of exhausting because you go, okay, now, now yeah. Liz has got me doing this. Now she's got me doing that. There's now always gonna... a new idea every, you know, every week we're on a new action plan. Yeah. Right. And I don't know where to focus and nothing ever gets complete. And, and then people get, you know, if someone else is really idea rich, it's very easy to get idea lazy and think, oh, well, I'll just go to the fountain of ideas because, you know, it goes off every hour. So people stop coming up with their own because somebody else is doing that job for them. And the people who are doing this, the idea guys out there have no idea that it's shutting people down. And and we see this happen in so many different ways, all of which seem like we're doing the very things that are going to create engagement, yet people are pulling away, feeling disengaged, un, unuseful. So I'm going to put some of the blame on the advice that people are getting, because I do think a, a huge factor that contributes to what you're just saying is this sort of like leadership junk food that's out there a lot of times, because I think a lot of people they go to a seminar or they, they grab a book at the airport and you're in my books are both the airport. So we're not talking about ours. We're talking about other nameless books, but they grab and, and it, it's got a bunch of platitudes or like they, or they see a quote on Facebook Right, and then they, and it's it's junk food because it's just like junk food. It's empty calories. It gives them a little rush. They think about it for like ten minutes or so, and they usually they think about it long enough to think about an example from their life that they can then change their memory to align with this new bit 
this new leadership maxim that they've learned and then walk off thinking, okay, I've got it. I've learned it. I've applied it. I do that. And in reality, I mean, it's sort of like eating a bunch of power bars, but never actually going to the gym and, and putting in the work. <laughs> you, you could, you could say that, but at a certain point, you've got to hit the mirror and realize that this is not working, right? You're consuming too much of this food. Um, and you're, and then convincing yourself that you're putting in the work when you're, when you're really not. I, I mean, I think that's, the part of it. And one of the things I love about the book is that it it covers that. It covers the sort of the mirror, right? The how do you figure out if this is you as well? Not just how do you know and how do you survive working for a diminisher, but like how do you confront do you the reality know? that you might be one? Right. And how do you I love this idea of leadership junk food is how do you know when you have been served up leadership junk food? And 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 there's so much of it out here. I think you are right that there's a lot that we've been taught because so many of this accidental diminisher dynamic, so much of it comes from people practicing popular management theories. Like, for example, how many times have we heard lead by example? You know, the best leaders model the way, lead by example. And when it comes to values and, and issues of morality, you know, and ethics, I think it holds true, but when it comes to action, it actually works against us. So one of the ways we find it happens a lot is that the leader becomes the pace setter. I'm going to set the pace. I'll set the pace for innovation, for customer service. I'll set the pace for cost control, for revenue growth. I'm going to set the pace for my team. I'm going to lead by example. They take that bait. Well, what actually happens when the leader gets out ahead of his team by a car length? or two. Do people, you know, race to catch up? You know, what happens when you're in a race that you can't win? I'll tell you what one of my, I learned this from one of my kids. So I, I've got four kids, as, as you know, and my last one is Joshua. And, you know, because he's the last, we, we sort of savor all those sweet moments. Well, this kid, when he was in second and third grade, every morning, mom, race you to the bus stop. Love to race mom to the bus stop. It was kind of the sweet experience. He loved to race mom because, as opposed to dad because, you know, he could win against mom sometimes. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, dad just like races down there and he's like, what? I'm faster than him. You know, I'm like, oh, I don't think you understand the point here. The point is you got to make it close. You know, he's got to win some of the time. But every now and then, I start savoring the wrong thing and I'm savoring the fact that, you know what, this might, this is my last kid. This is like the last one I can still run faster than. Like, it's like this, in fact, this might be the last person left on the planet I can still run faster than. So I go tearing down to the bus stop. I get there first and I look back and what's my kid who loves to race, loves to run, what's he doing? Yeah, David, you've got young kids. You know the answer to this. He's walking at this point. Well, yeah. And yeah, yeah it's, he, he's not racing. It's like a saunter. You know, he's not breaking a sweat. And when he gets to the bus stop, and I've noticed he said, he's said this on several occasions because I have to admit, I have done this more than once, <laughs> like crushed it and left my child um, back behind me. And he'll say the same thing every time, every time I win by a large margin. In fact, you might even be able to get it, but you have to, you kind of have to eight, nail eight-year-old boy logic. And Dave, I think, yeah, I mean, he figured, how, old, he, how old is your So your minor, mine are five and three, so they're not that smart yet. But I mean, he figures what's the point, right? He, he figures you've got this wide margin. He's not going to catch up to it. So that's the right, end. Right, because 
we're very smart and we can calculate, like I will never catch up to the fastest, the superstar, the boss, the pace setter. And this is what he said. He, he always says it, mom, we weren't racing that time. Huh. <laughs> because when we know we're going to lose, when we know we can't keep up, we end up just saying it's not a competition. And, and when leaders take the junk food of lead by example, show your team how it's done, like be the, set the pace they're more likely to create uh, spectators than followers. Like people, people are watching you do your thing. It's almost like, hey, you know, I'd love to help, but I, I can't quite, you know, you know, next time you lap me, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Um, and it's one of the ways that, that, you know, advice goes wrong or, you know, all the literature around sort of dynamic presence and charisma and energy. And if you take that bait, you can very quickly become the always on leader, the person who is always engaged, always present, always contributing, kind of like, you know, you're living on the junk food of leadership presence, like I'm going to show up into a room and I'm going to be big and powerful and impactful. And, and really, the best leaders aren't always on. The best leaders know when it's time to be big and they know when it's time to be small and and they dispense their opinions in small but intense doses, meaning, you know, once they play a chip and go big, they back away and create space for other people to jump in. So, like, you know, and they end up creating more, you know, by toning down the energy, the always on and knowing how to retreat into a corner at times, it creates room for other people to play bigger. But ironically, it ends up giving you a much bigger presence as a leader because when you do play a chip, when you do come in, people pay attention and you're more influential and more heard. But boy, I see a lot of people out there trying to like do the always on thing and there's a lot out there. Yeah, or you know, power I mean, bars. Yeah, no, totally. And and sometimes it comes from sort of over applying it, like what you're getting at. So as you were talking, I'm thinking about model the way is amazing advice. Huge fan of of um, Jim Kuzis and Posner's work. At the same time, or to to use a little bit more, uh, you know, 1980s business as military analogy, being in the trenches with your people. Where there's a fine line between that and and micromanaging. Micromanaging, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a really fine line to sort of being always on and always there to people saying like, well, you're just always doing it. You, I'm actually your assistant. I'm not your employee, you know, and and feeling that regard, which again doesn't give people that room to grow. Your son doesn't. I mean, I you're not probably training him to compete with Usain Bolt, so it belabors the point. But he's he's not going to get any faster if he never actually races. Yeah, and it is you know having some of these. So, so, you know, in this new edition, I profile a number. I think there's nine of these ways that we can end up accidentally diminishing. And it doesn't, having these tendencies does not make us a diminisher. It doesn't make us a bad boss. What it means is that we're vulnerable and that, you know, uh, without thinking more deeply about some of these supposed leadership strengths and popular practices, we can end up having a diminishing effect. But here's the thing I can almost promise everyone is if you are having a diminishing impact, you will be the last one to know. Hmm. Like your team gets it. They see this. In fact, they've developed whole workarounds to deal with you. In fact, they probably have 
uh, weekly therapy sessions <laughs> about how to deal with like Liz's, you know, idea guy or how to counter the optimism. Like your team knows about this. So instead of making your team work around what the best leaders do is they understand it's that mirror. They understand how sometimes their greatest strengths as contributors and even leaders can end up shutting down other people. And they just develop workarounds, small, simple things that that temper and redirect our strengths as leaders. Hmm. Hmm. No, I think that's I think that's brilliant. So, I mean, if if we may, what are what are some of these other ideas? Because I, you know, we we talked in depth at one. I want to give uh, room to some of the other ones because, again, if you're the last person to find out, then this book is probably going to help you find out before your people are willing to talk to you. Yeah, and and, and the book can help. And if there are people who, um, you know, don't have time for a book or already have a tower of guilt and they're not going to read the book, like, hey, I'm reading Dave Burkus's books. I don't have time for your book list. We also have a little quiz: Are you an accidental? diminisher and uh, you can find that on the book's website multipliersbook.com or probably just google that and you know tens of thousands of people um probably hundreds of thousands of people have taken this quiz and it's given them a little bit of awareness and a hypothesis and a place to start but um i i can share i can share a few of the workarounds um yeah me, let, I, let's do that i want to i want to say to folks like so you said something really interesting. If you feel like you are, here's this quiz. And we'll link to the quiz uh, in the show notes for this episode too so you can look on us and, and click over. But here's the thing I'm going to tell you. If you think you are, that's probably a little inkling of your conscience. So go at least go take the quiz if not get the book, right? Like if you start to think this. The other thing is that if you're starting to think this, you're actually probably at the place of maturity enough to start dealing with it, right? Which is good news. You just got to go start dealing with it. So get the quiz and also get the book and start dealing with it. So, all right, now, now let's go through some of these workarounds. Well, and you know, before we get to the workaround, I, I, I do want to make a, a case for not just self-awareness. I, I find that self-awareness isn't, an, isn't enough. It's about starting a conversation. It's about taking the, the deep, dark dynamic of diminishing and, and just putting it on the table and putting it in the light. And let me, let me see if I can quickly give you three examples that really inspired me. Um, uh, I get to teach leadership all around the world, and uh, it's always an honor. And there was a, a, a workshop I was doing in uh, Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, and it was a workshop for a team of, uh, it was an Emirati national company, and I'm working with this team, and we're talking about the ways that we can accidentally diminish. Now, I am very aware that this whole conversation about diminishing leadership, multiplying leadership, is all... Um, likely to cross over into some cultural uh, boundaries. That, like, I realize that I'm probably going to violate some cultural norms. I, just the fact of me being there was violating a cultural norm. And so I'm very aware that what I'm asking them to do might be difficult because I'm asking them to contemplate one of their accidental diminisher tendencies and then to share it with one of their colleagues, their peers, like talk about it openly. So I make the invitation, I sit down, I catch my breath and I look up back at the room and nobody's doing it like the men they're in their beautiful kanduras um and i see this kind of swirling of the the white robes around the room i be okay wow i've really violated the norm so i i ask one of uh, uh the executives there i asked khalid like what was happening and he said well you asked us 
to share with our colleagues what we think might be our accidental diminisher tendency, but we figured it was better for other people to tell us. So we're just reassembling ourselves into our natural work teams so we can get feedback from our colleagues. And, and I was so impressed by their not only willingness to confront their own observation for their own self-awareness, but to start this conversation. And so inviting other people to tell you what your accidental diminisher tendency is, is worth, you know, um, a lot more than just self-reflection. I'm also thinking of John Maxwell. Uh, You mentioned, I think, one of John's many, many books on leadership. So here's this phenomenal... I I didn't. I was actually trying to keep him nameless. But yeah, we've done it. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) So John is this amazing leadership guru and an amazing leader in his own right. And when he heard about this idea of multiplier, it very much resonated with him. He's like, yep. And then when he heard about leaders diminisher, he's like, yes, I see that in bad leaders. And then when he hears about the accidental diminisher, he starts to get like little pangs of guilt. Like, oh, well, I do that. And I do that and I do that. And John not only writes, he he runs a number of companies. And so with this a little bit of self-observation, reflection, pang of guilt, he starts a conversation with his team. How am I doing this? He makes it his year-long goal. And he told me, Liz, for the next year, my self-development is all about eradicating some of my accidental diminisher tendencies. He starts by having a conversation with his team, getting them to understand, talk to him, coach him. John, you're rescuing, you know, and they developed a whole set of signals, almost like the way a pitcher and a catcher develop a set of signals where they could say, John, you don't need to rescue that person. You know, like we're not at full count yet. Like, that, you know, we still are up at bat and that person has one more chance to get this right, hold back. And he would hold back. And so this phenomenal leader, you know, started with self-reflection and then went to a conversation and a set of signals and workarounds. That's really how it's done. You know, I'd advocate for start a conversation on your team. No, I love that. I absolutely love that. It reminds me, so in, um, in Under New Management, one of the things we talk about is, is performance appraisals and the companies that sort of ditch them and replace them with ongoing feedback. And one of the things I've been stressing more recently because I've realized how much it's resonated is that not only are those conversations more frequent feedback to the supervisor, but they should be a dialogue. In other words, when you're giving the feedback, it's also how am I doing? How am I helping you get towards the objectives? Am I giving you the resources you need? Or like you said, am I rescuing? Am I stepping in too often and not allowing you to actually sort of do it on your own? And that only comes from a two-way conversation, not just the normal one-way feedback conversation. Right, and the other thing that I think, David, that really slows us down is just the word feedback and conversations. And so many times, um, you know, I think I have really dug into this idea of what it's like when people are, are being diminished at work. And when I wrote this first book uh, back in 2010, I, I, I certainly quantified 
how it affects people's ability to contribute, the intellectual damage they do, you know, getting half of people's capability when people are are really ready and willing to give all of it. I underestimated the emotional damage it does to people, the collateral damage it does to others. And the wound can be so big, it's very hard for people to broach that conversation. Like, you know, if, if I'm trapped in a diminishing relationship, it's really hard to pull that diminisher inside and say, by the way, you're like sucking the life out of me. I feel like you're strangling me. You don't value it. Like, and, and it tends to not go really well with, with diminishers. But when we lighten up this idea that we're like giving people feedback and we're judging and we're sort of like condemning these diminishers and we simply create a language to talk about it in a I don't know, a light, uh, almost like an, an airy sort of way, like, oh, 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 you know what, you, 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 you know, your rescuer is kicking in, or hey, you're in optimist mode, it allows us to talk about it um, with levity. And I actually believe that the more levity in the workplace, the more we're able to handle the issues of, of great gravitas, like, I don't know, the more fun it is, and lighthearted, the more we can talk about what really is going on. So I'd say keep it, keep it light, keep it fun. Um, I, you know, one thing I look for when I go into an organization as I look for uh, just the level of laughter and joking and are people um, able to sort of make fun of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. And again, it helps have, it helps if you have that language so that you can, you have something, you, you have a, a, a like I'm, I'm picturing like a red cord on an old school train. You have something to pull on, right? You have a lever to, to pull on when it's going too far, but you can do it in a way where nobody's feelings are hurt. I, I really, really love that. So I want to encourage people, if, you, if any of this has resonated, and it, I guess especially if none of it has, and you're like, well, I'm not an accidental demisher, you probably are. So I want to encourage people to at the very least check out the quiz that we'll link to in the show notes at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Also check out the book, Multipliers Revised and Updated. Liz, you know what's coming next because you are a frequent guest on the show. Uh, we, want, we want to ask you a few questions, five questions we ask all guests. Are you ready? Oh, and I don't remember these questions at all. So That's fine. I, I'm actually looking forward to re-listening to your last uh, interview to see if your answers have changed. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, so, I hope they have. I hope I've, I've evolved my thinking a little bit since then. But, okay, hit me with them. Love it. What's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, I think the best work advice I received came early on in my career. And um, I had joined Oracle, a rapidly growing software company. And uh, we were starting this new department it was going to end up being the university for the company. And I so passionately wanted to build a management training program for the company. Like our managers had no training. We had no business, you know, leading and managing. We were doing it terribly. And I wanted to do, it was absolutely my passion. It's what I came out of school wanting to do. You could see it's the passion I continue to work on today. So I was telling my boss about how I really wanted to do this. And he said, well, and so it was my boss's boss. I was telling this to and he said, well, your boss has a different challenge. We're hiring uh, like crazy. So Oracle was um, hiring up tech grads out of the top tech programs, top schools. We had all these top technologists come in. And he said, actually, the problem that we're trying to solve right now is how do we get all of these technologists up to speed on Oracle products and, you know, programming? He goes, so really what your boss needs is someone to teach programming to these programmers. 
And he said, what would be great is if you could help her figure out how to do that. Okay, so I, so like, not only did I not have a passion for this, I didn't know how to do this. I mean, I, I came out of business school and they wanted me to teach coding to coders, people with bachelor's, master's, and PhDs in like comp sci, electrical engineering, AI. And so I, I took that role, gave up the thing I was passionate about and said, okay, if that is what the business needs right now, that is what I will go do. I do have a passion for teaching and I'll muster the energy and the intellect that I need to go teach programming to programmers and hope that they don't notice that I do not know what I am doing. Um, And I went and I learned how to do it. And it involved staying up till five in the morning on a number of nights, like learning things just the day before I was teaching them. And I think it was the best advice that I was given. I think there's a lot of people who get sold the junk food advice of like, go do what you're passionate about. When really, if you go do what is needed in a business, uh, you learn, you grow, you contribute, you become vital to the business. And what I have found is the more that I did what was needed rather than what I wanted to do, the more I just kept getting handed bigger and bigger blank checks to then go do what I wanted to do. Um, but it was because I had built the credibility of I understand what needs to get done. So instead of all your passion, uh, find out what needs to get done and go solve that problem. I That's love that. what I learned. I love it. I love I love it because then you have leverage to do what you want to do down the road because you've proven yourself as, as valuable. I love that. Um, speaking of that, now that you're in a position where hopefully you've got that freedom, what does an ideal work day look like for you? Oh, my ideal work day is uh, research, write, and teach. And so if I can get in a given I mean, there's some days where I am solely in research mode, you know, uh, where when the FedEx guy comes to the door, I'm just excited to see another human. You know? <laughs> like I usually <laughs> invite him in like, hey, can I get you a Diet Coke, you know, some muffins, a snack? You know, I haven't talked to anyone in days. But, you know, a, a great day is where I get to pour through some data, go over interview notes, try to pull um, and crystallize, I, you know, clarity and ideas out of mess and then get to write about that and then share and teach that, uh, that's a good day. Hmm. I love that. What are you reading right now? You know, I'm reading absolutely nothing right now. And the reason why I'm reading nothing right now is because my daughter gets married in a week and a half. And boy, she's got me working for her right now. (laughs) All right, that's fair. But you know what? I'll tell you what's up next on my... um, my reading list, I'm looking at it right over here. I'm going to read this book, Reinvention, Accelerating um, Results in the Age of Disruption. That's next up on my list. And um, I'm reading um, Hammerhead. That's, I've started that, and I'm going to finish reading that story about um, the, the Green Berets in the Army. Oh, nice. What do you believe that most people disagree with? Ask me that again. What do you believe that most people disagree with or that you feel like most people disagree with? Well, I think for starters is the thing that maybe you disagreed with with me. I really do believe that people want to contribute at their fullest, that laziness and apathy are learned behaviors and people learn them as coping mechanisms to cope with the disappointment. But I really do believe that we are are wired for work. 
that when we've developed a life of ease, uh, it doesn't feel good to us. I think that we're built for challenge, that doing hard things actually feels good to us. And I worry about what our our um, society, what our communities are going to look like when we have maybe gone to the four-hour work week where we have automated to the point where there's no work left for us to do, where we've outsourced our physical work of caring for our homes and doing like hard things and wielding axes and, you know, hammers and things. I actually don't think that makes us happy. I think we're really built to contribute and to work. And it's a deep human need. And not everyone agrees with that. Okay, in fairness, I only half disagreed because I said that it was fifty-fifty. I know. I hear you. Strangely, I agree with your disagreement because there, that that half, the behavior would indicate that those people don't want to contribute. But I think when you really double-click on that, I think that is a learned behavior, and it was one that brings people grief. Yeah, no, I would, I would definitely agree with you there. That like, if you start from birth, everyone. Everyone, one hundred percent. I just at when they get to twenty five years old and hit the real world, and, or or when they get to fifty years old and they're they're trying to decide what to do with the last you know the last decade and a half or so of their career. That's when I think the number gets closer to fifty fifty. But yeah, no, I, I definitely agree that I think they come. I, at least when I look at my kids and the incessantness of which that they're building Lego things only to tear them down and build them again, they definitely that contribution and making things is definitely there. Um, our, our final question. So we've talked a lot about how do you avoid accidentally becoming a bad leader, but the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? I think someone is a leader when other people choose to follow them when they could choose not to follow them. So just having the position, uh, being the manager, like if you control payroll, that doesn't make you a leader. It makes you a, a manager. And so I think about a leader is someone who prompts new action, hard things, and people choose to do it when when they don't have to. And uh, when I look at what is the purest form of leadership, I look at being a parent, you know, a, being a mom or a dad. I think I've learned a lot about leadership because, you know, once your kids can uh, climb out of a crib, outrun you, <laughs> you know, outmaneuver you, wiggle out of their car seat, you realize very fast that you don't have any levers to pull. Like you cannot mandate compliance. There's very little you can do as a parent and remain a good parent. Um, that involves compliance. That Everything you do has to be to operate in a way that would inspire a young person to to want to learn, to want to grow, to want to contribute, to want to make good choices. And so you lead, you learn to lead in the very purest form of leadership. Um, and I think it's a model that we in the corporate world can learn a lot from because uh, there's very little, like people's best thinking and work can't be taken. It has to be given voluntarily with choice. I love it. I love it. So Liz, the books again, uh, Multipliers, new, revised, and updated. While you're shopping for that, you should probably throw in a copy of Rookie Smarts if you haven't already read it. It's a fantastic book as well. Liz, third time is always a charm. First and second were two. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. 
Well, David, thank you. Thanks for the great conversation. Third time charm and thank you for being charming. So how's that?